This is not the show yet, right? Oh, no, no this is just random bullshit. No, no, right no. This is the traditional complaining about what a piece of shit Skype is before we actually get into it. Uh, I'm a traditionalist, and I like to observe the, form, <laughs> the forms and the unities. <laughs> Real fast before it begins, Larry, I just wanted to let you know, you have inspired me. I'm going back into prose. I'm writing a short story in your universe. I'm really glad you're doing that, but I did not know I had a universe. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on Deputy Brad. Ah, okay. It's actually uh, Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos, but he got it really cheap at a garage sale <laughs> and decided to recondition I, it. But I am actually writing prose for the first time in years. Terrific. You know, the way you've set this up, Larry, actually, there you have sort of posited a universe with an infinite number of Brads. He's like the poster boy for quantum mechanics. Exactly. <laughs> he really ought to be. You know, he, he should be like what Clippy is to Word. Brad should just sort of tumble onto the screen whenever there's a, a suspect equation. So, oh, I see you're trying to uh, tamper in God's domain. Do you need help with that? He peppered in God's domain. <laughs> and as it turns out, his last name is Schrodinger. Uh, hey, wait a minute. This is good stuff. Why isn't this on the show? Well, <laughs> it could be. We're recording. I don't want to waste good shit. I only have a certain amount of good shit to say, and, and, and you, we're going to waste it if I don't get on. Season three, three. Banana. season three, Banana. Banana. Season three. Banana. Jeff and Scott and Mrs. C. With Blanche and John, the crew, a new movie. It's so much fun that you'll have, have to pee. pee. It's gonna cure your apathy and ennui. It's the Slumgullions. We're still booking guests on the Slumgullions. You're not getting guests on the Slumgullions. Should probably fade on the and welcome to show number two of season number three, and most importantly, episode number 50. Yes. Hooray! 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 People said it couldn't be done because I said it couldn't be done. Jeff said it one, couldn't be done. No one said that. <laughs> well, they said numbers don't go up that high, so it's theoretically impossible. <laughs> But we've proven them wrong, and we're proving them wrong today. And we're celebrating so hard. It's Ride or Die Day here at the Slum Guyan. And we have one of our favorite guests with us, actor, writer, director, general polymath about town, Larry Blamire. I thought you were going to say Pollyanna. And, uh, and, and Well, you're a nice guy, but I, you know, I didn't want to. Lamar's such a Pollyanna. <laughs> I love that Pollyanna. But Polly, what, what did you say, polymath? Yeah, all right, I'll take that. Okay. Uh, and, and guys, congratulations on the 50th show. That's absolutely nothing to uh, to sneeze at, which, right. uh, and I and I believe me, I sneeze at things I don't care for. So it, it uh, is it is uh, the, the, the moistest way to express contempt. <laughs> that needs to go on a t-shirt is it really actually it's not bad why would you sneeze at something you don't like that doesn't even make sense i'm not sure where that, that... i don't i don't know i there, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh tropes and and sayings yeah. figures of speech that have made their way down through the years that i would like to trace back to their origins and uh, find out whoever came up with it and what the circumstances were and maybe punch them. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, eventually, yes. That's that's one of the things I, I love about your writing, Larry, is that is that you you have you have your characters say lines that sound like they should be a cliche. I mean, they're sort of in the format of a cliche, but they really make no sense. 
Yeah, that you know, and that is that is truly a goal, and I, I I intentionally try to do that. I want it to sound right, you know. And I realized recently that, like in Lost Skeleton, I mean, in the, in, in, that, in that movie, they, there's a lot of things in there that sort of sound right, and and yet if you you take them apart, they're kind of um, idiotic. But I realize I, I I've been doing that visually lately too by doing the series of comic book covers that I'm working on. I want them to sort of be at a glance mistaken for an actual comic book cover. It's kind of a visual uh, version of what you're of what you're saying. Yeah. I don't know what that means. If I hadn't, have, if I had not have known that those were coming from you at first glance, they would have. They would have. I would have totally bought that. That was much like Lost Skeleton when I first watched it. You would have gotten me again because. <laughs> Well, see, knowing it was from you, I went in going, okay, where is it? Okay, where's the twist? Where's the twist? But yeah, I mean, that's the cool thing about those is you do look at those covers and you can almost see them being old school comics. Well, uh, it, it's it sort of becomes a kind of, I guess it's a kind of chicanery, a kind of absurdist forging, forgery or something. I don't know. You know, yeah. sentences that sound kind of normal but they're off a bit i don't know for people who don't know yet who, who may not follow uh, larry on social media and you really should you should you should uh, <laughs> he's doing a book of if i'm not it's called uh, rare imaginary comic book covers or yes the full title is great scott oh okay rare imaginary comic book covers yeah and he's been posting some of them on uh, on facebook and on twitter and at first glance because I, f- I follow a lot of comic book artists especially old school guys and so the first one i saw i think i was just fast scrolling on my phone and i thought oh it's a kirby challenges of the unknown i've never seen and no it was just a sort of pitch perfect evocation of it they're just amazing they they are my favorite thing right now thank you I cannot wait for this book to come out. How many have you done so far, actually? I'm working on finishing up number 74. Wow. Nice. That, um, and I've revealed about 18 of those, maybe. So there's quite a few that I haven't revealed because I want people to get the book. My goal is 80. And when I hit 80, six more covers, then I will start working on putting the book together. And I figure while I'm doing that, there's probably a couple more that will come to me. And so I'll I'll, I'll maybe, you know, do a few more. But I think 80 is a decent uh, book size. Oh, yeah. It, each one will be a full page. Oh, nice. Yes. Well, they are. They are. They are beautifully and beautifully done. I mean, it's like. Thank you very much. What, what are we? Oh, look, here's. It's Timely Comics, or it's Fawcett, or it's, hey, there's Gold Key. It's just, it's a wonderful walk down memory lane. Yeah, that, part of the fun is trying to just uh, emulate all the different kinds of Harvey humor title, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a funny animal kind of thing, um, a Marvel monster type magazine, a, um, a, a superhero, of course, mm-hmm. uh, uh, mystery stories, uh, and even classics illustrated plus i have a mad magazine riffing oh Ooh. <laughs> okay painted um so far there's only three painted covers and i'm trying that takes longer so i'm trying to avoid painted um my dell and my classics illustrated and my mad magazine riff are the only painted ones the rest are drawn and colored Oh, uh, okay. nice. Now, I have, I have, I want to hear, um, pushing more of your projects, you talked about this on um, Twitter a couple of times, it may have been on Facebook, you did a pl- you did a play with kids. Yes. Now, I want to hear about this, because this sounds so cool. <laughs> well, I, 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 don't, I don't remember exactly what inspired me to do it, except that my, my seven-year-old son, Griffin's first grade class, is... Um, 
it's a great group of kids, and it's and it's compact. It's nine kids, and oh, wow. uh, I just got the idea of writing a play for uh, his class to do. And the teacher loved the idea, and then she saw the play, and of course she tried to stop me. Uh, <laughs> no, it was it was, um, it was really fun, and uh, and then we we took it to the level of you know working with the kids, and I would come in a couple of times a week and work with the kids on it. So I was actually. For the first time, working with kids on a play and, and directing them, you know, and, um, and it was very interesting. And it was interesting to see how they would read it once. They would go through it once and they'd be they'd be having fun. They'd be doing well. Second read through. Not so much. They really want to. Well, I just read this. Why are we reading it? Again? <laughs> what, what, what do you mean rehearsing? We don't know. We just did it. And, you know, and and uh, including my son, Griffin, who would. <laughs> You know, at times would lead the rebe- the rebellion, which I didn't appreciate. <laughs> uh, and, but of course, that's going to happen. But it really was. It ended up being a wonderful and rewarding thing. And there were a couple of kids who, at the start of it, um, a couple of girls, and they were very quiet, very shy. And by the end of it, they were they were projecting to the back of the house, but they were speaking out loud. They were speaking, and I thought. That's really neat. The experience kind of did something for them, and and plus, it, I, I think they really had a lot of fun doing it too. Uh, so it was it was a lot of fun. It was a very small play, very short one act play. My wife taught first grade for a lot of years, and she her background was in readers theater and things like that. And she she frequently would use short theater pieces to help bring out kids who are shy or don't uh, don't feel comfortable participating. So that that's a great tool. This brings up something I want to ask you. You wrote a play a play that's been very successful uh robin hood yes yes now what i wondered was is that a children's play meaning uh kids do it in schools or is it a play you would say cast with adults that's intended to be performed for younger people well here's the good thing it really is both because Uh uh it was originally written for um for the open door theater uh, which was a company I worked with in Boston that was working outdoors in a park theater under the stars. It was great. This wow. natural sort of meteor crater, the large crater that was overgrown with shrubbery and trees so that the audience could sit at the, at the bottom of that and, and the play could be around them in front of them or whatever. It was a magical experience. I worked there for, for several years and, and that's where I sort of started my playwriting. And um, the first thing I did was a Western and then the next thing I wrote for that space was Robin Hood, because it seemed like a natural. Now, um, and I played I played Robin Hood, which was really fun, and did not direct it. And it was sort of I I took from all the sources I could. I was very familiar with the Errol Flynn movie, of course, and I I read every Robin Hood book I could get my hands on. And I sort of took what I liked about the story, the legend, and made my own version, which uses a lot from different sources. You know, sometimes the adversaries, you know, Guy of Gisborne. Uh, right. Like, if you think of the Errol Flynn movie, you think, you would sort of think that, oh, Basil Rathbone, what a great sheriff of Nottingham. But he's not. He's not right. the sheriff of Nottingham. He's, that's kind of a secondary character, somewhat of a buffoon. In, in, in that movie. So what I did was I have the Sheriff of Nottingham is the, is the main villain, um, and he's very much the Rathbone-type villain, uh, or Peter Cushing, or what have you. But I also have Guy of Gisborne, who's rather a thug, because in some of the versions, Guy of Gisborne is this guy who wears animal skins, and he's a brutal hired killer. Oh. And, 
And and so I, I loved that idea. And he's a little touched in the head. He believes that the animal skins give him some kind of power. And oh. I really took off on that. And I and at the same time, I tried to bring out the humor, not not tongue in cheek so much as um, just kind of um, slinging uh, witty barbs back and forth sort of thing. Um, there's a bit of there's some absurdity in it, but I did not want to spoof Robin Hood. Uh, okay. That wasn't the intention. So it was published, and well, the good the good thing was it really could be done by adults or by kids. And and um, over the years, ninety percent of the productions, at least, have been schools. In fact, the most recent, just I think last week or the week before, there was a production in um, in uh, Sri Lanka. Oh, <laughs> oh wow. I, it's been there have been productions in Africa, quite a few in Europe. Uh, wow! And it, it's it's very interesting, you know. It, it uh, the vast majority have been in um, the United States. Uh, if you look at uh, a map of productions that Samuel French provides, then there's you know there's like a million dots in the United States. Yeah, I think I saw that. What, I think you may have posted that once. I was think just... I did at one point. Yes. So um, it's been, I've been very fortunate about that. It's been produced a lot. A lot of schools do it. And I was also fortunate that there was not a, a, a stage standard of Robin Hood until right. then. Uh, wow. There is another one out there. There's a musical out there since then, but that's that's fine. That's a musical. But this is, um, you know, pretty much a straight version of Robin Hood. Now, you said you didn't direct it, but you were in it. Was it weird having somebody else direct your words while you're acting them? No, um, no, it's a relief because <laughs> only only a complete asshole directs himself, um, which I've done many times. And, uh, <laughs> I've done it too, and I'm an asshole, so I know what you mean. I was I was telling someone recently that I used to hate coming to the set. Not hate, but I, uh, let me rephrase that. I would I loved coming to the set and knowing I didn't have to get into makeup and wardrobe, and I'd just be behind the camera because. Right. It's a lot, man. If you're in the film and you're and you're directing it and you wrote it, you know, it, it's a lot. So. Uh, so, yeah, it was it was not to answer your question. It was it was it was fun to just play the role and let somebody else worry about staging it. It's actually kind of genius. I'm surprised. I'm astonished, in fact, that, that, that there wasn't sort of a standard Robin Hood in the Samuel French catalog before then. Yes. But it doesn't surprise me at all that it's popular all over, all over the world because Almost every society I can think of has that heroic bandit legend. Yeah, it, it, it really is a universal theme of sort of uh, the underdog and um, writing, you know, writing wrongs, bucking the odds, mm-hmm. um, a grassroots sort of uprising against tyranny. It, it's just such such a common theme. It, it's no, no wonder it appeals to, to so many people around the world. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, your latest book is More Tales of the Calamo Mountains. Yes. And, and it's amazing. <laughs> if you haven't read it yet, spend the money, buy it. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I still want to do the audio book. I will send you a damn t- uh, audition tape if you ever do one, damn it. <laughs> well, we're, we're actually going to get into that in a minute. But but um, first of all, I know you go into it in the introduction, but just briefly, if you could talk a little bit about what why you decided to go ahead and write a, a, a sequel to it. You know, I think, as I recall now, when I finished the first one, you're kind of still in that mode 
And so several other stories came to me, and I wrote a few more. And then, and then it kind of trailed off a little bit. That inspiration trailed off, and I got on, involved with other things like making money. I had probably four or five short stories of Western horror that weren't in the first volume. And I thought, well, someday, someday there'll be a second volume. Yes, by Cracky. And then um, uh, sometime uh, last year, I don't recall what got me in the mode again, but I, I, I had an idea for a story and that led to another one. And there's always a chain reaction with these things I, I find with inspiration. It, it just leads to another, like these comic book covers. And so next thing I know, I've got another, uh, you know, 10 or 11 stories. Um, so there's a, a, another book of 14 horror stories, Western horror. Uh, the first one was 13, I think. So I have mm-hmm. 27. Yeah. So so yeah, I think that was it. Did I say anything else in the introduction that was of interest? Uh, there are some jokes that I'm not going to spoil by repeating. Uh, <laughs> I, I have to say that uh, as thrilled as I was you were writing a follow-up, it, it didn't really feel like a sequel, even though that's the coin of the realm today and Empire's Rise and Fall and the Strength of One's franchise. That doesn't feel like the case here because there's no real continuity between one volume and the next or one story in the next uh the stories are all uh unique uh individual there aren't repeating characters they feel connected i suppose by theme and setting but only really in the broadest sense yeah and i have to say that i i'm kind of uh i'm kind of i kind of like to aggressively differentiate stories Mm -hmm. what i mean is if i had a Let's say I had a, a story with a male protagonist and had a dark ending. Well, the next one has, is going to have a female protagonist, and it's maybe not going to have a dark ending. Maybe it's going to be more ambiguous. In other words, I, I did the same as I did with the first volume, which was how different can this next story be mm-hmm. and yet still be in this mythical uh, western netherlands of, of these dark mountains where strange things happen. And I think it's just me wanting to lead the reader along somewhere they don't know where they're going to go. Right. The one thing I wanted to say, and I'm sure Jeff has comments aplenty, is I had the same feeling when reading this volume as I did with the first one, which is that the characters and the tone, the mood, the settings, the details are so gripping and transportive that I almost never found myself looking for a twist, which I usually do in stories like this. Interesting. And and I think that probably just means I'm obnoxious, but I I do play this game with my, I do play this game of trying to beat the writer to the twist. And it's all about the journey with these stories. Not that the twists, when there are twists or the conclusions, the denouements are not satisfying. They certainly are. But it's really the journey with these stories. And the fact that each one is so different from the other while still being part of the same genre is what makes it just such a flow to read. I mean, you just, I, it's like, oh, man, I just read four. I didn't mean to. I was just going to read one and save it. But, so. Please, I read the first book in one night. <laughs> That's right, you did. It's amazing. That's amazing. That, that, that was the second, the second book I did try and take longer. It took me a day and a half. I actually tried <laughs> to savor them a little bit, but, uh, no, for me, right. I, when I, when I read the first book, 
I had just finished a replay of Red Dead Redemption. Which oh, is right. right. Uh, the, the Sergio Leone Western game, for lack of a better word. So oh. I was already in the Western mood when I got that book. Oh. And um, when I read that first book, all I could think of was just a bunch of people sitting around a campfire telling these stories. Hmm. That was just the vibe that I got. I heard, I heard the voices of the storytellers in my head. That's great. That's good. I love the campfire thing. That whole idea of them, you know, uh, is is uh, is very enticing, and I think I think that's great. And and just and back to what you said, Scott, about twist endings. I had I try not to um, rely on those because if you're always doing a twist ending, then the twist ending is predictable, and mm-hmm. and I find that. Shyamalan, Shyamalan. That's the worst. (laughs) Yeah, and I guess that's why I, 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 they didn't, they don't feel like gotcha twist endings or obligatory twist endings. I mean, part, uh, most people I know who love the things I love really love Twilight Zone, and I Mm -hmm. don't. I like it. I respect it, but there was this sort of, and now we have to have a twist. Yeah, which. Sometimes it's fine and provocative and, and poignant, but other times it's just formulaic. And it can sometimes, sometimes if the writer's really on his game and the situation is fascinating and the characters are very involving, the twist, mm-hmm. the twist is so unwelcome. It's like, oh, well, here's yeah. this artificial thing you threw in. And I was, I, right. I was liking his relationship with the girl. Now we have to serve fate. Fine. And you, yeah. th- there's no there's no sense of that in these in these stories. They they don't rely on twist endings at all. And it's sometimes sometimes because there's a sense of growing dread as you read. You don't even really want to get to a twist. I'm yeah. I would be so happy. <laughs> I'd be happy with it. just if it was just straight. If someone just hammered this hammered this corkscrew straight, that would be fine. Doesn't need <laughs> a twist for me. Yeah, and I like to. I, I one thing about the new volume, I I took it farther in a way. I, I think I wanted to take the high strangeness factor and ramp it up, so that how how queasy can I make this? You know, mm-hmm. really like uneasy. I wanted it. I think the last two stories in particular, in the book, uh, hopefully do that. I, I from what I've heard from from people who've read it, that's that's been the case. Uh, that they kind of. That they kind of unnerve a little and unsettle, and you're not sure why. That's really, uh, I feel successful if that happens. And I'm just going to say it right now. I want more Dr. Articularis. <laughs> you, you mean, uh, so you, you want him to come back in another story? Yes, I, I loved that. I loved, again, I loved every single story in the damn book, Larry. But yeah. there was something about Articularis and his group that just... I was drawn to them. That was that's a great collection of characters. Articularis, the great dude. That's interesting. I, I think there is yeah. more to be explored with him. You know, I, I hadn't thought uh, in terms of any recurring characters because in a in a story like this, a recurring character kills the suspense a little bit because they're recurring. It's like a TV series. You know that this detective is not going to get killed. Oh, absolutely! Really in danger because because he's going to come back next week. And so, and I'll tell you, actually, the only character I sort of thought about that I would find interesting uh, to bring back was um, Marshal uh, Hellgruder, Deputy Marshal Hellgruder from the first book. Who was a guy goes out to uh, that mining town and tries to solve a mystery. And uh, it's a long story in that in 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 the the longest story in that book. And I kind of liked his character, sort of a part timer, 
wearily going about his job, trying to trying to do a job. And I thought, you know, it'd be interesting to to see him riding around the Calamo Mountains and looking into strange occurrences. But again, I, I don't, I, I just couldn't see a recurring character in these um, because I, I just want every every story to be new and different and completely, you know. That's truly valid. I totally get it. That's just me personally yeah. going, but I like him so much. <laughs> well, I'm glad you like him. Some of the characters I thought, oh, I would like to see blown up perhaps into a novel. And every time I think that, I tell myself to shut up. Yeah. Because putting out a book of stories is uh, ballsy, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but also extraordinarily welcome because I miss short stories. I miss, you know what I miss is um, I really was inspired in the 80s by Twilight Zone magazine. Mm. Oh, yeah. Which was a great source of um, short stories uh, in, the, in the genre. I, I really liked that magazine. We, we have nothing like that now. No. It's true. Well, magazines magazines are going away. I was, I was yeah. devastated when uh, Video Watchdog folded because that. Unbelie- I, I still can't believe it. I can't either. It's our loss. I mean, uh, and I and I mean as readers, um, and certainly as writers. I mean, it was yeah. what a what a fantastic forum for so many uh, of the the best writers in the in the genre. Mm-hmm. And I, I like that it wasn't it wasn't a narrowly focused magazine. It had a really broad bailiwick. It did. It did. So you never knew what you were going to get. And you never got tired of the of the content. Yep. It wasn't like Gorefest. Uh, OK. <laughs> oh, God, well, I, I remember that magazine. Ugh. Yeah. So we put out the call on Twitter and Facebook soliciting questions from you, the listeners, for he the guest and we got a few emailed to us uh, last night and this morning. So if you're willing, Larry. I'm willing at least uh, until I get to the answers. Then ah, we'll see. Okay. <laughs> and suddenly you will start. How's that precaution? It's, it, it's a wise disclaimer, I think. <laughs> I think. I think legally you're okay now. Well, this first one is just sort of timely, so I'll, I'll, I'll lead with this. Uh, question from Lynn. As a director known for comedy and genre <laughs> films, two categories traditionally ignored when handing out Oscars. What do you think of the Academy deciding to create a separate category for so-called popular films? I was hoping we could talk about this. Good job, Lynn. Interesting. Yeah. I, I just caught that the, the other day. Um, I, I, uh, I, I don't know. I, I think, uh, um, I think it almost creates a convenient outlet to, not have to worry about honoring films, certain films. Does that make sense? Um, yes. In, in other words, we don't have to feel guilty about never having a you know best picture winner that is a, a genre film. We don't have to worry about that guilt now because we have this. We can we can kind of tuck them into that separate category. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you guys think? Well, I mean, w- when you make comedies, you. You quickly disabuse yourself, I think, of the notion that you're that you're going to be piling up Oscars because it, it's it's true that there there are neglected styles of film, unfairly neglected films that that have not gotten uh, a fair shake because the Academy can be kind of snooty. But this, yeah. I don't feel like this is the solution. This seems more like those participation trophies they give you when you reluctantly take part in the swim meet at summer camp because <laughs> i guess a hunk of electroplated pot metal is just in legal compensation for jumping in a freezing lake and shrinking your <laughs> genitalia down to the size and appearance of little pleasance and fantastic voyage 
it's it's a it, it feels like a door prize now I, I'm not I am not opposed to shaking things up because the Academy is very old and very staid, very stuck in its ways. For instance, when they introduced best animated film and no longer forced uh, animated films to compete with live action, that made sense because those are two very distinct I art agree. forms. I agree. Uh, this I don't know. It depends. They, they didn't release, as you say, this this news just came out. Uh, they said details to come. So, like anything else, it's it's all in the details. But it's mm-hmm. it seems like it's going to be a stigma, and I almost wish that if they do do it, they they give the winners of the popular film Oscar like like a a, a, a mini half size Oscar like they gave to Shirley Temple. <laughs> <laughs> just no, just to be honest, it'll wind it'll wind up just being a statue of Mickey Mouse because every year it's going to go to Disney. Well, yeah, considering they bought Star Wars, they bought uh, Marvel. They they are usually the top grossing film, so This is officially the Oscar for Disney. This is uh, this is me being cynical. This is the Disney Oscar. I don't think this is you being cynical. I think this is you being clairvoyant. <laughs> well, we'll uh, see. Yeah. yeah, I agree. Okay, question from Cygnus T Palomino. It, it is is Blamire an Irish name? Uh, it is a it is um, Scottish name um, and English name. Um, mm. It originates in the uh, Cumberland area, which is in North England and and uh, the south of Scotland, kind of right in the middle there. Um, so you do find the name Blamire in 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 uh, in Scotland. That's where you find most of them. And um, I'm Irish on my mother's side. Am I remembering this correctly? Wasn't your uncle an English music hall performer? Yes. Uh, my uncle, uh, Bert, uh, was um, Bert Edgar. <laughs> That's a great English music hall name. Yes, it is. Bert Edgar. And um, his real name was William Blamire. And he uh, was a, yeah, a music hall uh, performer. That is a great lineage. <laughs> How many people can say that? Damn few. Exactly. That's true. Uh, oh, jeez. I just realized we we just got faced and insulted. I just realized Cygnus and Palomino were the two spaceships in Disney's The Black Hole. Oh, that's right. I think we can deduce uh-huh. from this reference that whoever sent this question may love Larry, but they hate us. And oh, they, and they want oh. us to suffer. <laughs> oh, that's painful. Wow. <laughs> Uh, or they hate me because they know how much uh, they know how I feel about that movie. Je- Jeff kind of liked it. <laughs> Jeff liked the black hole. Yeah. I, I, much, much like a lot of movies, it has its issues. But I enjoy that movie still, even after the rewatch. Mm-hmm. Good. All right. <laughs> did Did you ever see the black hole, Larry? Uh, years, 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 and years ago. What's the? Can, do you have one memory of it? I have none. <laughs> <laughs> No, I honestly don't. I, I, I saw it a long, long time ago, and I I honestly don't remember much about it. Yeah, J- Jeff and I wound up rewatching it. And same with me. I go, yeah, yeah, I'll watch that. I, I remember seeing it, but uh, I don't remember a single thing about it. Now, when I was watching it, it all sort of horribly came back to me. Uh, but uh, anyway, I don't recommend it. <laughs> In case there's any, yeah, I was getting that impression. Yeah, okay, all right. Uh, ah, here, here we go. Here's here's a long time later. A question from Pearl Drops. Oh boy, Pearl Drops. It's nice to hear from you again. Yeah. She writes, big fan of Larry's. After hearing you guys talk about his movies a couple years ago, and then hearing your talk with him last year, 
My eldest daughter shares my love of Universal horror movies, and we both loved Dark and Stormy Night. Yay! Oh. Although she she annoys her friend Sasha by calling her Sebasha now. <laughs> uh, and we quickly we, responsibility. Yeah, it's you, you got to carry that weight. We uh, she continues. We quickly moved on to the Lost Skeleton films, and then I picked up Suburb on the Edge of Never after hearing you guys talk about it on the show. And yes. could hear the actors' voices so clearly in my head, <laughs> I was wondering if Larry has considered doing an audiobook version. People have, have mentioned that, and uh, it, 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 first of all, I have to say, I wrote that with with their voices in my head. I mean, I definitely was hearing Brian and uh, Faye and Jan and Dan and everybody. And, um, oh, not Jan, actually, Anna, Anna Mall is not in. Um, spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I definitely heard their voices. The logistics of getting that cast together to do their voices, or even if you did them separately, uh, would be would be just so expensive, so expensive. Um, and you know, and, and you got to remember, this is a self-published book, mm-hmm. which means mm-hmm. that I don't have any national coverage uh, of any kind. I mean, it's just basically um, uh, kind of a, a trickle of sales. So, uh, and this, that's you know the reason I haven't written a second novel, uh, which I'd like to another doc novel, but it just I can't afford to because it, you know, it's um, it's months of doing that uh, writing and. Um, it's just it's it's self published, so it's not re- reaching a, a big 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 wide audience. Um, but and, so yeah. there, understood. Yeah. This uh, that actually uh, leads into the next question from. Okay, I, I love this name. Kudos, <laughs> kudos to the kudos to you, reader. Uh, this is from Old Dark House Frau. <laughs> I like awesome. it. Yeah. Are you planning to make your books available on Kindle? I love your writing, but my shelves are full, and I only buy eBooks now. I I, I really want to do that, and I, I get requests every week for that. Uh, I will will try to do that. The, the only the thing that has held me up is that you have to reformat the book to mm. do that. Yeah. So mm. it's it's more. Um, have you done that? Has anyone? Yes. My, my my book, uh, Better Living the Bad Movies, came out in 2006, and uh, it still it still sells uh, nicely, but hardly anyone buys the paperback anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I reformatted it. Actually, I had to do it twice because the first time was sort of a learning experience, and uh, published it through through Kindle, which was pretty effortless and, and very quick. I also did an audio book version. Uh, and when I say I did it, I mean I made the decision to have it done. And that was the beginning and end of my participation. It was uh, taken in hand and uh, produced and narrated by a couple of very talented people, uh, John Zara and Blanche Ramirez, for all your audiobook needs. Um, and then it was uh, published and distributed through audible.com. And that, again, was uh, effortless. So I can recommend it. I appreciate that. And and at the back of my head, I'm going, that's more work. There's more work. That's more work, yes. <laughs> you know, and I, I, I'm someone who goes on to a project night. It's my kind of my my blessing and my curse to, oh, I've got this next thing I've got to do now. You know, and I'm obsessed with that next thing. Mm-hmm. And that's my, right now, it's the comic book 
cover book, and I am closing in on finishing that. And I, I, I have a certain tunnel vision. You know, I, I can um, I can multitask, but um, but mostly I like to be working on one thing at a time. And so it's it's very hard for me to think in terms of of going back and doing something like that. But um, but I, I do hope to to get the at least get the Kindle thing done. Mm-hmm. Now let's go back to the show because nobody cares. <laughs> okay, so. <laughs> oh, actually, I do have a story for you, Larry, before we get to the game. I have heard from a couple of my Brit friends who listened to my appearance on The Happy Place where I blew lots of smoke up your ass. <laughs> and oh, yeah. That's, that's by the way, folks, listen to Dave Probert's The Happy Place because it is an antidote to... <laughs> To all the bitching that you you hear on many podcasts, he's he's devoted to uh, he's devoted to joy. Ex Geek Planet Online Overlord Dave Prober interviewing people and asking them what makes them happy. What I was going to tell you is several of his Brit people looked up the tales from the pub, and I've been getting emails from them talking about how insane you are. So I have slowly <laughs> been increasing your British audience. Oh, thank you, thank you. That's great. That's great. It's kind of fun to when I, I'll. Someone will post uh, out of the blue. Someone will post on Facebook a, a Tales in the Pub link, and and I I'm like sort of oh yeah we did that that was fun because I you know you forget about them and they're up there and they're just there and uh, they really were uh, a lot of fun. I'm uh, thanks for sharing. This. It's great. Oh, that like I said once once uh, Dave found that was what Dave watched for his research for that was all he could find and he watched all of them. He said I I give him points, man. He watched every single one of them mm-hmm. before we sat down and talked because he wanted to get a handle on your brain. Oh, you don't have to give him points for that. They're hypnotic. Once you start, well, watching. very true, very very true. Although <laughs> I've said it before, I will say it again. My absolute favorite piece of stupidity that you have ever done, and Walter and I still do this. <laughs> I always carry around a spoon because you never know when there might be soup. <laughs> I just, I love that. That's just that. <laughs> See, I thought so that was just good, good horse sense. I was trying to give good advice, but, but you're looking at it in a whole different way, which I appreciate. But I always do it. But Walter and I always have our spoons around. That's because <laughs> of you, just so you know. So, uh, Larry Blemeyer, your source for comedy and life hacks. <laughs> soup related life hacks i had one more thing i, w- I wanted to talk about yes when, when, absolutely so, oh absolutely i wanted to uh mention the uh, audio adventures of big dan freighter yes because uh, we are uh starting to get that going again it's been a little God. quiet it's been sitting there a little quiet and we're all busy doing other things brian howe allison martin uh dan conroy and and uh and producer Paul Fay of Worldwide Radio. We're 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 all sort of committed to the next level with the audio adventures of Big Dan Freighter. And that's kind of, you know, we're emulating old radio shows and there's, there's a bit of uh, a fire sign theater craziness to it. And yes. um, and uh, they're a lot of fun. So we hope to uh, be, you know, having news about more of those in the um, in the coming months. Yay! Uh, we do have some more in the uh, in the can too, um, more episodes. So uh, I don't think I'm I'm giving anything away by saying we're looking at it as going to look at it as a podcast now. Oh, so, which we're trying to. We're now kind of we got a learning curve there um, about you know how can we make this viable? I mean, there's a lot of work that goes into these, and and so um, so that's where that is. Just wanted to uh, to plug that. 
There are a lot of there are a lot of Patreon supported podcasts, and huh. I I would certainly pony up for this. Uh, yes, as would I. We do not ask, but that absolutely, I will give you. I, I'll give you money. <laughs> that's uh, yeah, that's we, very. We actually, funny. we talked about Patreon. That's that's good to hear. That's good to hear. Uh, yes, a few of my a few of my very few. Uh, my favorite podcasts uh, are, are listener supported. They're a little on the PBS side, and I, I I cannot wait. I loved the the audio adventures of Big Dan Freighter, and I, 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 I there there is a fire sign theater hole in my heart that I thought nothing would ever fill again. So. Thank you for I that. I don't know if you listened to it or not, Larry, but one of the other of the five things that made me happy was the Fire Sign Theater. So I talked about you and the Fire Sign Theater on the oh. same show. Oh, man. It's kismet. Yeah. <laughs> and know, it's it's an honor to be in the same breath for sure. Well, like I like I told you, dude, when I when I discovered Fire Sign Theater way, way back when I was seven, like I said, that's one of the things that warped my little brain. Um, I had been waiting for years for that style of word salad. That's why once I realized that Lost Skeleton wasn't a real bad nineteen fifties movie, <laughs> I'm just like, This is what I've been waiting for. Ah that's <laughs> Same thing reading, same thing reading, uh, subvert the edge of nowhere, man. It's like reading a fire sign theater book. It's just, it's, we, we need that style of humor. Yes. Jeff desperately needs someone to toss his word salad. <laughs> yes. It has not been tossed in quite some time, oh my God. but right. definitely let, let us know, let us know, um, how that progresses. And if you do do the Patreon thing, you need help whoring that. Let us know. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Very cool. Very cool. Very exciting. Is this game you've got? Yes, it's just a little it's just a little game. Just a quick fun thing that actually is is sort of inspired by uh, Starter. Because I've been I've been missing your column in uh, Video Watchdog. And uh, this is a slight this is a variation on that. So uh, I stumbled into an internet argument between a few people who are complaining about unobtainium in Avatar. Uh, oh. I, I guess because it's playing on cable now. And I mentioned, I said to everybody to please cool your jets. Unobtainium is not an innovation nor an abomination peculiar to Avatar. It's a, it's a term that goes at least at least back to the 1950s when it was used as a rueful joke in engineering circles to discuss theoretical materials needed for the space race. Really? Um, yeah. Or, or actually, sometimes uh, unobtainium was used to discuss real materials that were literally hard to obtain. Um, for instance, when Lockheed was developing the uh, SR-71 Blackbird spy plane, uh, they needed more titanium than they could lay their hands on because at the time the Soviet Union controlled the supply of titanium. Mm-hmm. So I argued that unobtainium is it, that's fair game in stories focusing on scientists and their jargon because uh, my and my coup de gras was because even john rogers used it in the core uh, did you see that movie larry the core the core no okay um are you familiar with john rogers by chance the screenwriter no. yeah he's a very interesting guy he's, he's a uh, educated in physics but started get, immediately, almost immediately went into stand-up comedy and he has this david mametian fascination for intricate con games that uh oh, okay was sort of the basis for his TV series, Leverage. Um, oh, okay. All right. No, no, okay. Anyway, he was one of the many writers who was brought in and worked on the core. And his stated goal when he came on and did his draft was to make them take out the really, really stupid stuff. I believe at the time he worked on it, on the project, the script still had an enormous subterranean geode 
full of living dinosaurs. So he got them to take that out. That was a win. <laughs> but mainly... Was it really, though? Uh, <laughs> was it a win? Yeah, but you, that's, oh. a, that's a fair point. That's a fair <laughs> point. But mainly, his main goal was he wanted to bring back uh, and I, what I think he actually called the white shirt scientist hero. Oh, nice. Uh, the 50s and the 60s, yeah. Just the sort you would see Peter Graves play. <laughs> Yeah. In that era. So I was thinking about those kind of characters and just how much I lo- love them, which is partly the reason I have always adored <laughs> Dr. Paul Armstrong, because he is he is the perfect and perfectly hilarious evocation of those guys. So uh, we're going to play a little game called White Shirt Weakest Link. <laughs> okay. Game is actually a misnomer. It's not a competition. It's more of a celebration. Uh, the rules are simple. Uh, name a white shirt scientist hero character that you love. Doesn't matter how you feel about the movie he's in. You can love that or hate that. Then we'll name a scientist hero from a movie that we hate. And finally, just for variety, a non-scientist character from one of these same films. Let's give the working class guys, you know, the technicians, the mechanics, the radio operators, the support staff, a little of the recognition they don't usually get. So um, I'll go first just to give you guys an idea. Okay? okay. All right. Okay. So my favorite white shirt scientist hero is Richard Denning in The Black Scorpion. Hmm. And what I love about him is he is one of the most aggressively regular guy scientists you're ever going to see. I mean, his sleeves are always rolled up. He's got sweat-stained pits, and he's unashamed. His, his fedora is tipped back on, the, on his head. He's a cheerful, unpretentious guy who, who calls his fellow PhD doc, and he romances Mara Corday with a refreshing uh, je ne sais quoi and joie de vivre and conbrio. And he's a guy who, who he puts himself in harm's way, but only when necessary. Like he goes down into the dangerous scorpion field cave because he's a geologist and he knows more about the cave caves systems than the army guys. Uh, but he doesn't do anything really, really stupid. Uh, like, for instance, there's someone who does something so stupid that it's it makes me laugh every time. In the, at the climax of the Black Scorpion, if you've ever seen it, they try to uh, kill it with a, oh, yeah. an electrified harpoon, and, but they have to hit one little particular spot on, on, yes. on its chin. And they miss the first time. So the, the Mexican army major who's who's manning the harpoon starts to pull the pull the harpoon hand over hand. Well, he gets a fatal dose of electricity because it's an electrified harpoon. <laughs> That's pretty stupid. That makes me laugh. <laughs> Our scientist does nothing really, really dumb. So that's my favorite. We'll, we'll go favorite, and then we'll go least favorite, and then we'll go uh, non-scientist. So, Jeff, you want to go next? Who would you say? Wow. Next? Okay. I got to say, and I am horrible with names, so I am not going to have the actor's name, so please forgive me. My heads are hung in shame. But um, <laughs> I think I'm going to go with um, the lead in Revenge of the Creature. Mm. Oh, my God. Really? That, you mean John Agar? Was that Agar? Yes, and I guess it is John oh. Agar. Then, yes, I am going to go with John, <laughs> only because, and here's why. Here's why. Now, the 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 white shirt scientist, I admit, is is not a um, 
a character that well i've seen a lot of the movies i i do not know them in depth you know what i mean i just remember most of the white shirt scientists that i remember from the from those movies back in the day were all very um smart or not but they were all very stodgy and it was always we must do this the the non-serious version of paul armstrong for science and what i liked about john agar in revenge of the creature was that he was kind of a dick yeah because he was played by john agar well, yeah, but I, I, okay, uh, true. But I mean, the character overall was just was just kind of a dick, and there was just something. The first time I saw that was back when I was a kid, and um, I was watching all the fifties and sixties, like Friday night, Saturday morning horror hosts. And I remember that was the first time that I saw one of those characters where I was like, okay, you've got a little bit of a personality. This is kind of cool. You're a dick, but you've got a personality. So just just for, just for the fact that he had more personality than I saw amongst most of the white shirt scientists of that era, I give it to Agar. That's the only thing I'll give Agar, but I will give that to Agar. Okay. All right, that's probably the only award he ever won. So this is and it's from me, so it means absolutely nothing. Just like the Academy's best achievement in popular film. It exactly. All, all <laughs> and we all come full circle. Yes. Uh, Larry? I'm going to have to give it to Richard Carlson. In, um, now, I could say it came from outer space, but I'm going to, or, or um, uh, the magnetic monster, but I'm going to say um, Creature from the Black Lagoon because there's a certain iconic quality. And because he has to put up with asshole Richard Denning. Yes. <laughs> and now this is the other side of Richard Denning. By the way, Black Scorpion is a Griffin favorite. Oh, really? Um, oh, probably. Cool. He and I have probably watched it eight times, and um, it really is a fun movie, and and, oh, and yeah. it, it's a well-made movie, and and uh, and and Denning is great. I, I love Denning, and um, and I like Denning in Creature from the Black Lagoon, but yeah, he really is a, a, an asshole in that yeah. movie, and and Carlson just for putting up with him. I mean, he really is the um, the epitome of professionalism. He's not afraid to get his hands dirty. In this case, get his hands wet because he's. You know he's underwater a lot, and mm-hmm. and uh, so he's a real hands-on scientist, and 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 really Carlson just he's always the first one that pops in, into my head, because as a kid I don't think I thought of anyone typifying the scientist as much as Richard Carlson. Right? Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I you know, I, I always felt that I would have liked I would have liked um, as much as I do like Earth versus Flying Saucers. I would have liked it more if Richard Carlson had been in the Hugh Marlowe role. I just, I, something about Hugh Marlowe just makes my, maybe it's because he was, he was, I, I hate him because of the day the earth, uh, the day the earth stood still. <laughs> it's just hard. It's hard for me to see him as a hero. Um, okay. Excellent choice. Uh, so now would be, uh, now we're going to go to least favorite. Oh, before I do go on, I, I would like to uh, have one honorable mention for the for the likes. That would go to William Hopper in The Deadly Mantis. Oh, yeah. Oh! To my surprise, he makes a very convincing scientist. He wears a constant, slight air of distraction, but he's not doing an absent-minded professor thing. He's a little impatient when people just don't get to the point, but that's less arrogance than the fact that he, he's playing it very energetic. And he seems more uh, amused than disdainful by how stupid everyone around him is. And he's very un-Paul Drake-like. Yeah. So I was going to say he lets Craig Stevens do the other stuff. Yeah, that was the sole reason he was knocked out of contention for this award, because he uh, delegates the actual monster killing to TV's Peter Gunn. 
And uh, the genuine white shirt scientist hero does his own monster killing. I also like his obvious disinterest in the romantic triangle. Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. One last honorable mention to Jeff Morrow in the giant claw. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah actually if you're doing honorable mentions can i throw in one Absolutely. i don't know if this i don't know if this would be considered a, a true white shirt scientist but quatermass would he be considered part of this ilk uh, which 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 were you talking about brian dunlevy yes would, would quatermass the, the, would the character be considered like the the white shirted scientist well, trope? he's he's he, he he is but you know I, I, dunlevy it's more it's more like a corporate executive running yeah. around borders to me Valid point. No, valid point. Okay. So the white shirt scientist hero I hate uh, would be uh, each and every one played by John Agar. (laughs) (laughs) But but I'm not going to count him since uh, the movies uh, he stinks up are usually already stinky enough that, you know, they aren't necessarily ruined by him. So I'm going to go with Paul Hubschmid as Dr. Tom Nesbitt in The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Yeah. He nearly wrecks an otherwise perfect movie with his inability to reconcile his Swiss or French or whatever accent. He's a little sleep too. He's a little sleep. He's asleep the whole time. He, I don't buy that he's named Tom Nesbitt. Tom Nesbitt doesn't, <laughs> doesn't sound like a Swiss scientist. That, sounds, that's a George Sanders role. Yes, exactly. Or, 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 wow. you know, or, or the heir to a soft drink fortune who played flankerback for Yale. <laughs> um, and, and, and there was this whole... Like, There was this whole era where they thought, all right, he's got a weird accent, but if we give him a clearly Anglo name, no one will notice. Like they used to do that with Bela Lugosi, like in the in the in the devil bat. He's called Paul Carruthers. Sure, I buy that. Or the ape man, James Brewster. Yeah. Yeah. It it, it just doesn't really work. He's he's just so weak. And the the movie is so strong that um, he makes me hate him. Larry? You know what? I'm I'm going to have to honestly say that I am uh, that I could agree with you on that one, mm-hmm. and I can't think of anyone who is that ineffective. I don't. I I, I am honestly at a loss for uh, one that I really hated. And if there was one, it might have been in a um, in some uh, really bottom of the barrel film that I never uh, revisited. I mean, you know, Russell Johnson, I think, is, is terrific in Attack of the Crab Monsters. But then I remembered he's not he's not actually a, um, uh, a scientist hero in that. I mean, he's he's really the engineer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think I, I don't have one. I okay. obviously don't. Fair enough. All right. Jeff. Actually, what's, you're going to you're going to laugh, Scott. I was going to say the guy from the Beast from 20,000 Phantoms. Oh, were you? Okay. I was going to say that. I, I hated him, too. I, I thought it was a horrible performance. And you're right. It was the one down spot in otherwise great fucking perfect film. All right. The Paul Hubschmidt hate is sweeping the nation, apparently. <laughs> There's a lot of Hubschmidt hate. Is that like the Hicks boson, the Hubschmidt hate? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, the, reason, the reason I was thinking about Jeff Morrow was because his situation is the opposite of the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Instead of a monster being let down by the scientist, it's the other way around. Same. Yeah, in yeah. any other it's, movie, which they yeah. found out at the screening, and that's uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, a well-known story of them, uh, uh, you know, trying to hide in their seats or just sink down in their seats. Like, I don't know this movie. I'm not with this movie. The Manos effect. The Manos effect. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> as as it's scientifically known. Uh, <laughs> okay, and so just to give the working class guys a shot, uh, my favorite. Non-scientist hero in a monster movie packed with scientists is Kenneth Toby's Captain Hendry in The Thing from Another World. Sure. Okay. Sure. Oh, yeah. So you, you could have 
Actually, you could have easily said Toby from uh, It Came From Beneath the Sea. I like him in that, too. Don't like him as much, but I do like him. Mm-hmm. In um, The Thing, how how natural was he? I mean, he, 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 he was the epitome of naturalism. I mean, he is so offhand in his delivery. It's so It appears to be so effortless in, in The Thing. And, and, and part of that is the direction and the overlapping dialogue all mm-hmm. helps. And I, I think that's a great choice. And, you know, even Robert Cornthwaite, who gets a little bit of heat for being mm-hmm. slightly hammy, yeah. it, it, he's, he's very subdued in his scenes with, with Kenneth Toby. He, yes. he brings it down. Yep. And outside of His Girl Friday, I can't think of a better example of uh, the kind of snappy romantic patter that we find in uh, the scenes between Toby's Captain Henry and Margaret Sheridan's Nikki. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Those are great scenes. And unlike most monster movies, where, like, all right, well, we got to throw in a romance to, so, you know, the women will enjoy this too. Uh, they're completely germane and they they advance both characters and they mm-hmm. raise the stakes and you have people to care about. And it's just, it's, it's a big cast, but it's interesting how much you don't, how many people you don't want to see die. Yep. Very true. Okay. Uh, Jeff? So, oh, I'm sorry. Um, well, oh, no. I, wait, wait, it's me. Aren't I next? Yes, I'm sorry. You are. What about me? 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 No, me. <laughs> it's, uh, I, as Scott just said, it is all about you. So, go to town. I know I mentioned uh, Russell Johnson, uh, who's who's really good as a sort of working class uh, hero in um, Attack of the Crab Monsters. Uh, but my choice would be John Bromfield in Revenge of the Creature. Oh, now, he is the hero of the first half of the movie. He's oh, okay. Like, and, 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 and here's how strange that is. I mean, every, every creature movie, all three of them, each one had two heroes and a leading lady. And um, in this one, you know, he is set up as the hero of the movie from the opening. I mean, he is a troubleshooting adventurer. He knows what he's doing. He basically, you know, they're talking about like, okay, so the creature's definitely down there. We know, uh, you know, now what are we going to do? And he basically says, let's... Let's dump in a lot of dynamite and blow the fucking thing up. And um, and that that to me is this. It just cuts to the dynamiting and it's 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 amazing. And this guy grapples with the creature. I think not once, not twice, but three times. He he yep. he, he fights hand to hand with this thing. Mm-hmm. And he is what I have written about. Um, called uh, he represents what I call the doomed professional. This oh. is a person who is set up. And I wrote about this on Facebook a while ago. He's, he's, it's a character that I've seen in movies where he's set up to come in and save the day. He's, he's given sort of heroic attributes. You think he's, he's, he's someone who's going who's gonna to make things happen, and boom, they get killed. And that's what happens in Revenge of the Creature. I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me. And Bromfield is good. I think, I think Bromfield was, he was not like a great actor, but w- when it was something in his wheelhouse – he could be really good. Like I think his his U.S. Marshal show is is, is very uh, is really fun. But he's very good as this um, as this sort of two fisted. I don't give a shit what you got. I don't care if it's a fish man. I'm going to get the fucking thing. Right. You know, yep. this, this yep. adventure um, uh, for hire. Uh, so there, that's 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 my choice. You know, it's it's interesting that you made me remember the first time I saw the film when I was a kid, and I thought it was going to be about him. And then when yeah. they get they get to SeaWorld and John Agar shows up, it was like, <laughs> fuck, no. <laughs> disappointing. But uh, that's another thing. You should, do, you should do a book of essays from drawn from the stuff you do on Facebook. And if you're not following Larry on Facebook, yeah. you really should because there's great stuff. Thank you. The Dune professional thing, 
I, I re- reminds me of a story that William Goldman was, was telling about the, the ghost in the darkness. If you remember that yeah. movie, Val Kilmer and Michael Douglas, right? Yep. Yeah, exactly. And, okay. and originally Michael Douglas, who was producing the film, um, agreed to step into what was then the small part of a character called Redbeard, who was a professional hunter. And they bring him in to take as like, oh, this this guy's the best. He'll take care of the lions. I mean, no problem. He comes mm-hmm. in, uh, sets it up, has a plan. It's very smart. But but the lions don't fall for it. And he gets killed about a third of the way through. Basically, as Goldman was saying, to show just how, oh, shit, the stakes are. Like, yes. Well, if this guy can't make it. Exactly. And, right. Right. And he said that's the, the purpose of the doomed professional. Right. And the and what doomed the movie, in Goldman's opinion, was that Douglas fell in love with the character. And he wanted more and more of him written into it until he finally wanted him to survive. Now, instead of having a guy who, whose existence explains how dire the situation is for a hero, you have a hero split in two, which is always less interesting because you, mm-hmm. you have to service both of them. Yes. Um, yeah, it's funny how if you don't honor the uh, terms of that sort of social contract with the audience, you can really screw up your film. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you a, 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 a smaller supporting, more supporting example of the Doom Professional is in a movie I don't like, which was Scorsese's Cape Fear remake. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't like that movie at all. But the best scene in the movie is between Robert De Niro and Joe Don Baker. Yeah. Joe Don Baker comes into that movie as a guy who's going to get things done. He's he's like, this is a guy, this is a good old boy who's going to come in there, and he is a professional, and he is going to take care of everything. Now we kind of know that's probably not going to be the case because this has to be a longer movie. Hmm. And he gets and he gets killed, but he is basically in that movie to show how badass Robert De Niro is. Yep. Right. One of the only performances I can say I actually did kind of enjoy from Joe Don Baker. Oh, I, I'm a, I'm a fan. Um, I, I, I've liked, I like Walking I like Tall that. is one of my favorite movies. I for, I'm Walking Tall. I keep forgetting he was in Walking Tall. You're right. You're right. So Walking Tall, that is a great movie. Also, I would highly recommend a Walter Matthau movie. Charlie Varick? Did it? Yes. I love him, I Charlie never, Varick, because he's I so... I've never seen Charlie Varick. Oh, he, uh, Joe Don Baker is playing against type as... A hitman named Molly. Who's who's very who's very smart, kind yes. of cerebral, not not the shit kicking kind of character you associate, not, not the cartoon he became later. Exactly. Not Mitchell. Not Mitchell. No. Okay. It's All kind right. of a so then, so then you, I take it you both would recommend Charlie Vera because I honestly I have not seen it. I know I know the name, but I know nothing about the movie. Any anything with the name Don Siegel as yeah. director? Well, I, I, oh, it's, it's a Don Siegel film. Yes. Oh, shit. Okay. Enough said. I will find it. Okay. Thank you. Okay, Jeff. Uh, before I do, just because we've been talking about the creature films real briefly, I do have to say one of the coolest moments of my cinephile life, I was working a convention many, many years ago at a, uh, at a one, it was at a one screen theater that we had here and they were showing movies all weekend while the convention was going on. I got to see Forbidden Planet on a giant screen and I got to see Creature from the Black Lagoon in 3D. Nice. Which that was that was that was a fun experience. My choice for fun care okay, I'm I'm going a little off the beaten path here for this because I can't I do not like the movie at all. <laughs> and I do not like this particular character at all, but the performance I think is amazing. 
So this is the actor in me just recognizing a brilliant performance. And you've mentioned him a couple of times, Larry. Russell Johnson in oh. Space Children. Well, oh. he's, a, he's a villain in that, though. I That's know. what I mean. Having so, but I, but what I mean is so used to seeing him playing the professor or playing the scientist, watching him play an alcoholic child abuser, basically, and he nails it. He's a genuinely, he's the scariest part of the whole film. Hmm. I, I genuinely love his performance in that. And he's not a scientist. I mean, I know it's not a monster movie, but it's in the same timing. Jack Arnold directed it, so I'm kind of lumping it in. So I'm kind of cheating a little bit, I know. But um, oh, no, that's good. That's cool. I don't think I've seen it. It's sort of Children of the Damned, but they're the heroes. Yeah. And uh, Jackie Coogan is in it. Jackie Cooganing all over the place. Russell Johnson is, I think, somebody's stepdad. And he... It's an asshole. He's, is, he's an he's, alcoholic. He's a, he beats the kids. Yeah. Of course, they, they, it's not explicit what's happening because of the, what, the time frame. It's made in the 50s. But you but, know, he is the darkest. Mm. Everything about his character is just so dark. It's, it's just it's a very different performance from him. Yeah, I'll look for that. Johnson was a, a good actor. And he um, when he was back in his Corman days, he was before Gilligan's Island. He was all he was playing like. Weasley characters. He was playing uh, like in westerns a lot, a Weasley gunman kind of thing. Uh, on an episode of, I remember an episode of The Big Valley on TV where he and Charles Grodin are homicidal maniacs. Uh, brothers, these homicidal wow. treated as heroes in one town, and they go and rob in all these other towns. And and um, and he was absolutely uh, convincing as a, as a scumbag. So yeah, good good actor. He definitely right. yeah. he, he doesn't he doesn't have a big role. In Space Children, um, the actual the, the lead actually is uh, what's his name? Uh, he was in North by Northwest. He was one of the henchmen. I think he's the one who dies in the biplane. Adam Williams. Yes, oh, Adam Williams. Oh, yeah. Anyway, um, actually, get to see Jackie Coogan in some very scary shorts. Yeah, that, that's maybe one reason not to watch the film. I don't know. <laughs> All right, fair enough. All good choices. Everybody's a winner. Except for John Agar. Except for John Agar, <laughs> who will remain a loser as long as celluloid exists. Oh, wow! I'm sorry. I just, I just always he ruins so many movies that I was like, it's a, a '50s movie. It's got a monster. It's going to be so cool. And then he would just show up with that dead-eyed look. I, I think they kind of nailed it on Mr. Sanseda when he I, actually it's in Revenge of the Creature uh, scene where he's he's flirting with. Um, Laurie Nelson in front of the tank that contains the uh, title character and uh, he sort of grins at her winningly and and uh, one of them says uh, never let a smile touch your eyes that's the John Agar rule <laughs> it's true just, just he's flat well, now let's give him some now what about the, the creepy uh, alien possessed scientist and brain from planet Eros you know what I do believe him in that I give him oh that. man I forgot about that movie wow there's a flashback pretty creepy very creepy. See yeah. that as a kid, and I when he has those, uh, the, the, the you know, the shiny eyes there and that grin on his face, and uh, pretty creepy. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Here's one. Here's one for you, Larry. Here's one that scared me when I was a kid when I was watching those movies. Do you remember the Angry Red Planet? Oh yeah, yeah. That's an old favorite. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, I remember the first time I saw that that, that 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 mouse bat giant mouse bat thing that they show at the end. That scared the shit out of me when I was a kid. The bat rat spider, I believe. Is yes, the, whatever the hell that thing was. I just remember I, that and the fact that the movie, I, I, there was something about the way it was tinted red that creeped me out as a kid, too. Yeah, good stuff. First time I saw that was on a black and white TV, so I had no idea about the, the, red, <laughs> the red tinting. I just thought, well, this is really shot poorly. 
You know, that's got another one of those guys that could ruin a movie for me. Not ruin. Not ruin. Take me out of a movie. Gerald Moore. Gerald uh, Moore. He's always doing this sort of tough guy thing. Yeah, we, he was kind of like a gangster in space. In that movie. Yeah, yeah. It's like, how did you get, did you kill the astronaut and take his place and stow away on this ship? Because mm-hmm. he really don't seem like going. I guess he was good in radio, but just on screen, he just, he just never worked for me. Wasn't the Angry Red Planet also done by the same guys who did Reptilicus? No, Angry Red Planet, I believe, was an Ib Melchior, if I'm pronouncing his name right, film. Wasn't he involved with Reptilicus or am I? Oh, yes. that I don't know. Oh, he was? Uh, Journey to the Seventh Planet. Right. Journey to the Seventh Planet, starring John Agar. He is inescapable. This is... Okay. I I think I have a solution here. It's kind of a, a student exchange program. We'll take Marshall Thompson... We'll put him in Journey to the Seventh Planet, and then we'll take John Agar, and we'll put him in It, the Terror from Beyond Space, and have him be the first guy to get killed. That would have been great. (laughs) Oh, man, that's just mean. So harsh. And on that note, we'll wrap things up for this segment and be back in a moment with something very special, which uh, Jeff will now spoil for you. Larry is joining us for the Ultimate Movie Challenge. That's right. We have a celebrity guest, and he brought us a movie. What is it? What did he think of it? What did we think of it? You'll find out after this message. It wasn't papers he was keeping in that locked room. It was the dead body of another woman. What kind of trouble is she in? We think she's been killed. Beginning to look like the perfect murder to me. There's no such thing as a perfect murder, my lad. Somewhere there's always a flaw. What's that? That says a hacksaw, wouldn't you? There was another girl in the house, wasn't there? You had two women. I don't usually go around letting strange men pick me up. He was different. Have you ever been to prison, Mr. Burchard? Want to tell us the names of these girls? No, why should I? Look, Burchard, you'd better realize that you're in something of a jam here. If you think I killed that woman, you're mad. We'll have the man within 24 hours. You ever release that quote to the press? And welcome back. We have a special treat for the Unknown Movie Challenge. Larry Blamire is still with us. Yay! He, he has brought a sort of cinematic potluck a dish to pass larry tell us about the film and why you picked it the film is uh, jigsaw from 1962 written and directed by val guest uh, who's known for his um, hammer films and um, and some wonderful comedies before that but this was a film that is essentially a police procedural british set in brighton and filmed in brighton england and um i had never heard of it it, it showed up on Turner Classic Movies a couple of years ago, and I saw it, and I was absolutely enthralled by it. Uh, I found it ahead of its time as sort of the methodical understatement of this story unfolding. And the POV of the film is extremely centered. It, it, we are really with the police as they unfold this uh, this mystery of, of a murder that's happened. And it has a, uh, a, a, a nice gritty feel to it, which I find a lot of black and white films from the early 60s do have. I just, I found it absolutely engrossing. It was, I was, I was pulled along by the twists and turns 
and I loved it. It is unfortunately not available uh, in Region 1. Uh, you can get it um, if you have an all-region player. You can get the DVD from Great Britain, but we don't have it over here. But it's a film that should be better known. I think it's really well done. And I got to tell you, the joy about this for me was when uh, Scott mentioned this movie. I had not heard of it. I knew absolutely nothing about it. And it was so nice just to go into a film completely and utterly blind. I loved it. I'm, I'm like, I don't know what this is. Let's find out. Boom. <laughs> that was so cool today. I so rarely get to do that. So for that alone, Larry, thank you. Oh, good. Uh, I was the same way. I I'd never heard of it. I was excited by it because it was written and directed by Val Guest, who maybe most people would know from The Day the Earth Caught Fire. Or Eddie from Space, uh, the Quatermass films. Um, right, of course. That's right. That's okay. I knew I, I, knew, I knew that name from somewhere. And the second one was uh, Enemy from Space. Uh, those two films, certainly. And Abominable Snowman of the Hill Himalayas. Interestingly, this is based on, a, on an American novel that was originally yes. set in Connecticut. The lead characters of the movie are Detective Inspector Fred Fellows, uh, played by Jack Warner, a veteran British actor and a veteran of police roles. He uh, played a constable in a British TV series called... Uh, Dixon of Doc Green that ran for over 20 years. His, uh, he's got a partner uh, who's a younger detective sergeant who I either was or was not his nephew. I wasn't really clear on that. I don't recall that now because it's been about, I think it's been two years. Ronald Lewis played that part. Good actor, too. Very good actor. Very good. And they both work really well together. I like the <laughs> first shot of this movie. It, it opens up on something you rarely see. It's, it, it's a dreary English trailer park. <laughs> Filled with presumably white trash, or as this is Britain, uh, white rubbish. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then it moves to a house that, uh, that uh, is, I guess, on the ocean, although you really don't see, uh, they, they don't really take a lot of advantage of the the oceanside setting because there's not a lot of shots of the sea or, or mm-hmm. people on beaches. They're sticking to the seedy end of resort towns. And as it turned out, I guess when they were shooting this, Brighton was in the middle of a huge uh, police corruption scandal. Right. Oh, God. And they were desperate for good uh, publicity because the first thing you see on screen, we would like to thank the extremely kind and complete cooperation of the Brighton Police Department. <laughs> Apparently, they cooperated their asses off. Without whose help, this film could not have been made. Right. And it turned out that uh, uh, it was the department was so corrupt that they basically abolished it a couple of years later and folded it into uh, the, the police departments of a couple other towns and not a whole new one. But uh, I guess they did shoot in actual police, the police stations. Yeah. I wasn't sure what to think about when it first started. I thought it was going to be just some sort of depressing kitchen sink realist piece. As it starts mm-hmm. off uh, in this room, there's a kind of an attractive, kind of a working class woman. And she's got a headache and she can't sleep. And she's passively, aggressively trying to sort of accidentally wake up her lover, Johnny. Whose face we never see. Whose face we never see. And when, she, when, he, when he, he, she's just loud enough that he can't pretend to snooze anymore, he gets up to leave. And she goes, no, no, don't leave, stay. And he pulls out some banknotes to tip her, I guess. You don't get the sense that she's a prostitute. But she doesn't want money. She wants him to leave his wife because she's preggers. And they're a little more frank about it. I feel that they would have been in a, an American studio movie at the same time. We don't see Johnny's face. We don't hear his reaction. But we can tell he's a very decisive man because he almost instantly murders her mm-hmm. with a cutaway to a train whistle, which is the perfect crime because as soon as the steam dissipates, there's no murder weapon. <laughs> I got to tell you, that first scene almost, oh, I won't say, I, 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 I can't say it ruined it. That, I did not like that first scene at all. 
How come? I hated the fucking... It felt like a forced monologue. She's talking to herself just so she can say stuff. There was exposition just for exposition. Yeah, before Johnny woke up. It kind of took me out just a little bit. Just when she was talking to herself. The one thing that I won't say I had an issue with, but the one thing that made me giggle was there are throughout the movie very extreme reactions to certain things. And it starts off in, in the very beginning when there's no aspirin and she violently flings the bottle of aspirin across the room, shattering it, which, of course, is what actually, quote unquote, awakens Johnny, supposedly. Once she walks in and they start talking in the whole stay with me, blah, blah, blah. Granted, she sounds kind of like a very sad, sad character, which th- that's not a bad thing. I'm just like, OK, this woman's very pathetic, kind of. And the fact that all she wants is this guy. But. The fact that he didn't talk from that point on, that actually added to the tension there because well, yeah. she said, you know, or she didn't even say she was pregnant. It was just a whole, I think it was something like, uh, now you're going to have to leave her. Pause. Mm-hmm. Three months now. And I was like, ooh, okay, that was cool. And, you know, you don't see his face, but I mean, there's definitely some body language there. You know something's going to happen. Mm-hmm. You just absolutely know. Since you don't see his face, you can feel it. And there, after the monologue, there was a genuine growing sense of tension in that scene. I was like, okay, bad opening, but now I'm completely fucking hooked. Yeah, and uh, there's a, such a, there's, I find a bleak ambiance to this movie that I find in a lot of early 60s black and white movies, and actually a number of English ones. Uh, if you look at The Sporting Life or Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner, sure. There's something about the, because here's what happened. You got black and white movies in the 50s, and they're, um, they, they look a certain way, and, and movies are starting to look more uh, real when you get into the crime films that are filmed on location, and now they, and they don't look anything like the 40s movies. But then in the 60s, we've got, they're now they're widescreen, and yet black and white, which I find a, a very strange combination, mm-hmm. uh, like yeah. the films I just mentioned. Another one is that one, um, what's that hammer, creepy hammer film about the child molester? Um, oh. Never takes, never takes sweets from a stranger or something like that. Um, oh, yeah. Creepy as hell. And it's that's another one that has that grainy black and white that just it always seems to be overcast and grainy and, and miserable. I find it a very compelling ambience that, that, that it sets up. And this, this film has that. Oh, a- absolutely, absolutely, man, because like I said, from the moment, like, the credits roll, and we meet our cop characters, who we stay with for the entire rest of the movie, as you said, which was just a brilliant idea. I sat this whole movie, my elbows were on my knees, my my, my, my face is in my, in my hands, I'm just watching this going, okay, where is this going to go? I will say in defense of the opening scene, that, that, is, that is one of the uh, 50 great monologues for young actresses. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. I had a different feeling about it because on, when she first starts talking, she's sitting up. He's on his side. You don't see his face. You immediately think that's significant. As soon as she starts talking, like, oh, I can't sleep. Are you asleep? Oh, it's nice that you can sleep. You expect him to, like, look over his shoulder and says, well, I was trying to. Or, you know, you expect a scene to start. And instead, you just say it's this monologue. But there's a lot of information. I cut this scene some slack in retrospect because... Otherwise, there'd be no reason to care that she that she was killed. I agree with you. And I also think it has the effect of, um, you know, the person by themselves in a haunted house and they're caught talking just to hear their own voice mm-hmm. and how it makes us uneasy because we're listening for other things. Now, the more she talks, 
the, and the and and the more silence from him, the more uneasy it makes the viewer. I think. I, once, I, he, I agree. once he wakes up, once he wakes up, absolutely. It was just the opening monologue part just didn't sit right with me. Forgive me, it's been two years uh, since I saw it, at least two years. Do we know that he's asleep? We don't know for sure. And in fact, this is, I think, part of uh, Guest's brilliance. You mentioned the tension that it causes an audience when a character is talking to themselves. And it briefly crossed my mind, well, maybe he's dead. At that point, I, did, I didn't know who the victim was supposed to be. But the impression I got as the scene wore on was that she either thinks he's faking it, uh, he's awake, but he's just he just doesn't want to engage with her. Yes. And when the, there's no aspirin and she throws the bottle into the sink and it shatters, you go, okay, that's an aggressive act. Something's going on besides the fact that she has a headache. And then he does wake up and she gets so servile. You can tell their relationship is she's desperate. I mean, she's very much like, spend the night with me. Please just stay here. You want to leave, blah, blah, blah. Go, stay with me. Love me. Don't go back to her. And then she plays the pregnancy card, which you feel like she's been working up to, which is, again, why in retrospect, I give that, uh, that speech a little. I mean, I understand what you're saying, Jeff, but I feel like she's talking herself into confronting him. Valid point. So through all that. You learn pretty much everything you ever will learn about their relationship and it, really all you need to know. Yes. The next scene is the younger cop who goes to a what, what seems like a ridiculous crime. It's a it's a real estate office. Uh, yes. There's a guy who, who rents out summer cottages. Somebody in a very amateurish way. It wasn't it wasn't a professional burglary. Somebody just punched in a pane of glass and all they stole were the leases. And the cops are not impressed by this as a crime. But they are really <laughs> perplexed by it because it's like, right. I think someone says, well, do you know someone who, who fences hot leases? There's like little bits of cop humor thrown in that, that I think is nice, that, that plays off nicely against, yep. the, the as you say, the very bleak atmosphere. Um, yep. So now they start looking at all these all these houses that are for rent. Then they find the woman's body in the trunk. And in an interesting macabre turn. No spoilers now. Oh, no, we're going to spoil it. We're what? That's the point of it. We usually do. We do usually do. Really? Um, well, we don't have to. If you're morally uh, opposed to it, we don't <laughs> no, have to. I'm just someone, I don't want to know anything going into a movie. I'm always like that. And so if I were someone watching this show, I'd want to be intrigued enough to watch to seek out the film. Well, you know, actually, in this case, you know what? Larry has a point because this is actually a, 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 a little spoiler for review. This is a pretty fucking great movie. Yeah, it's true. It the, the, really ones we, the ones we spoil are usually movies no one's going to bother to watch anyway. We watch on their behalf. Well, and, and, and the very nature of this, this is a murder mystery, a police procedural. So by its very nature, it sort of depends on not knowing anything. He has a valid point, Scott. Maybe we should be a little bit more uh, judicious in the way we do this one for well, that. I think in this, in this case, I, I, I would I would rather. Yeah, I mean, in this case, you know, of course, I can just I can I can hang up and you guys can. can no, can... no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, we'll keep two light spoilers. How about that? All right. OK. I really like the characters in this. Oftentimes in movies like this, the mystery in this case seems sort of mundane, but it's the accumulation of of little odd details. I like how our older cop fellows, how he is a com His competence is established not by great leaps of detection. But just by these throwaway bits, like mm. you can tell everyone likes him because when he comes out and he's, the cops are digging up the front and some of them are keeping the press away. And he just goes, if you guys had lunch, arrange with Al to make sure that you guys have lunch and shifts. It, it has nothing to do with the story, but it has everything to do with the character. It's like, mm. oh, he's a guy who looks after his men. 
at the same time, a few reporters show up and you think there's going to be the typical obligatory standoff between press and police where the cops are telling him to get lost or or refusing to give a statement or getting very confrontational. And there is there is a reporter character who's kind of persistent, but everybody's pretty friendly. And all he does when he's when he's telling them to step off is not because this is an active crime scene. Stay away. He just goes, I wish you guys wouldn't smoke here because, you know, you throw away a cigarette, but it's going to confuse us. Yep. Yep. Nice detail. Um, there are a lot of little details in this movie, like little lines of dialogue, just little minor things that I just I just stood up and I was like, okay, that's pretty freaking awesome. Um, there was a line, there was a scene, this is not spoiler, there's a scene where uh, another reporter shows up. It's at night and he's not getting any information and the one cop is like, you know, you know, leaving a car unattended while open is a uh, ticketable offense. And the guy, and they were like, all right. And then the cop is like, so you need to either turn off or push off. And the push off is very fuck off in its intention. And I'm like, okay, this is, that, that's a great moment right there. Uh, it was, yeah. The, the, the cops are not, there's, there's no comic relief cops. Everybody's, everybody's competent and, and yep. workmanlike. And the uh, little bits of humor that are in it are very organic and definitely spring from characters. None of the humor in the film felt forced. The jokes, when they, what, what jokes there were, all were very character-oriented. Yeah. Larry, tell me how you feel about this, because yeah. when I was watching it, first of all, I was much more gripped. I got, I got pulled into it almost immediately in a way I wasn't expecting. Um, yeah. It struck me as a fascinating fossil, and, and I don't mean, not that it's dead and petrified, because it, it still works beautifully <laughs> as, as a mystery and as a movie, just that <laughs> it's a species that went extinct. I mean, a, a methodical policier without a lick of violence made in 62 in 10 years from the, from when this was made, that was the kind of thing you'd really only find on TV. Yeah. That's that's interesting. And you know, it, 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 uh, even though we're inundated with police procedurals, um, you look at the whole law and order series, right. And all their very, Mm -hmm. and CSI and all this stuff. These are all police procedurals, but, but they relish the, the violence. They relish graphic, graphic autopsies and photographs and stuff like that. So so uh, something like this, which is so much more understated and therefore more effective, I think, uh, is very rare today. You're right. It is. It, it becomes kind of an artifact, really. Yeah. And they talk a little bit about the autopsy, but you, you don't see it. Um, yeah. th- there's never a scene where the old guy has to chase somebody and go, you know, I'm too old for this. <laughs> And actually, he he just gets to be a a, a font of old school wisdom. There's one scene that I just I loved where he realizes that something was written on the the telephone pad. I was going to bring the seat up, you bastard. Well done. Okay. And rather, oh, we've got to take that back to the lab. He tells the young guy, find some iodine. And he heats up a spoon and puts some iodine in it and holds the paper over it. And the fumes make the the impressions of the, the words, which turns out to be a woman's name and telephone number. Appear and he goes, well, you know, where'd you learn that trick? And I, I, I said, oh, this is before forensic science, or this is what we had for forensic scientists when I was your age, or something like that. So it was just, it was just a nice little, oh, nice. old yeah, school. Yep. They had a really nice mentor-mentee relationship that that gave the film kind of an emotional center because the cops, I mean, they're 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 vivid characters, but you learn nothing about them. You don't know if. Inspector Fellows oh, is married. Thank uh, God, you know, no backstory. You know that wouldn't even that wouldn't even get out of the uh, the first meeting today. You're right. <laughs> you know, where's the backstory? Where's the character arc? Where's the um, where's the haunted past? You know, 
he's got to be haunted by something from his past and it, it's all going to come out and you know that kind of stuff it's just yeah. sort of by computer so refreshing it, it really was yeah it's like wasn't trying to atone for some mistake he made 40 years ago or jim wilkes is the name of his uh, sergeant uh he's got either a wife or a girlfriend that he keeps breaking dates with because this thing is getting <laughs> but we never see her there's a few phone calls there's no crisis um mm-hmm. everybody's just sort of very british and fatalistic and about we know it. and we know that the older cop likes the football and that's oh. pretty much all we know about him uh, all of this that you're describing about these characters adds to my feeling that I remember very clearly watch this. I've only seen it once, but it was one of those movies where I, I remember thinking, I don't want this to end. I just, just, I just hope this keeps going because I'm really entertained by this. And of course it, 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 um, you know, it has to come to an end, but it really was, uh, that engaging in every, in every, uh, sense. I do have to admit when it got to, and again, we're not going to go into spoilers, when it get when it gets into the final five minutes, I'm like, okay, how the fuck is this going to end? I mean, they without giving yeah. too much away, an impasse is reached. That's all I'm going to say. Watch the film. You'll know exactly what I mean. Mm-hmm. And you honestly have no idea how they're going to get out of it. And within the last 30 seconds of the film, the final 30 seconds is a the most brilliant resolution. And then it just ends. Yep. And I, I absolutely love that. It's like, okay, they know what they have to do, and that's it. And I'm like, wow. Yeah, there's a certain impossibility there where you just, you know, you think this, this can't even have an ending. It won't, it won't have an ending. I mean, how, how, does it, how is it going to? And uh, I love that. Oh, I, I did too, because I thought, oh, is this going to be some sort of fashionable post-war nihilism where they know the guy is guilty, but they can't prove it? And he could walk and Mm -hmm. they they leave the station to go get a drink. And the way that they realize he was lying and that they can prove he was lying is is really understated. It's not like a triumphant aha moment. It's just like, oh, the young guy goes, oh, we're idiots. And basically, and and then the old guy, they walk away and that's right. And Inspector Fellows has a great closing line. Uh, He doesn't say, good show, lad, you've solved the murder. uh, he says, well, you, you realize you just talked yourself out of a drink because now they got to go back to the office. I was going to put this in my fascinating, irritating, but since we brought that this up, um, the, the thing that I absolutely fucking adore about this movie, no musical score. Oh, is there none or just minimum? If, if there is, I didn't hear it. I, I, I mean, there may have been some over the opening credits, but in the actual film itself, I do not remember any musical cues at all. I don't recall any. Um, Scott, do you remember any music? No, there's almost no music, but there is there is this tintinabulation motif. A number of scenes begin or end or are somehow punctuated by bells or... Train whistles or boat whistles or, or truck, truck or car yes. horns or telephones ringing, ringing, ringing. In fact, it even ends with the sound of a telephone ringing. So mm-hmm. there's no music, but there are those effects. And I, I, I'm not exactly mm-hmm. sure what the purpose of that was. Interesting. Yeah, I, that's it was. But that was going 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 to, to the end reveal in any other film. That reveal would have some sort of musical sting. Uh-huh. Yes. 
And the fact that there isn't any, it relies totally on the two lines that you get from the characters and your own ability to pay attention mm-hmm. to figure out what's going on. And I gave, I, I just, I fucking love that. Movies don't do that anymore. <laughs> well, I, th- I think the fact that, that they don't at any point chase the murderer down, I mean, if they did, there would have been some pounding score playing. Oh, absolutely. But, but they don't. I mean, it, the, the, the way they catch him is almost hilarious. Mm-hmm. I, I want to say something about the casting in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, it's filled with people who, who were well-known in British television, which means not that well-known to me, but who were in enough movies that, you know, I, I've seen their faces. All exceptionally good actors. Everybody playing at, a, at the same sort of naturalistic. It's like, it's like if you took the flat affect of Dragnet, but actually cast good actors. Mm-hmm. Instead of Jack Webb, it, right. the thing about TV, you know, TV police procedurals, it's like everything's really urgent. There's always a ticking clock and everybody's shouting. These guys don't shout. They're just they're, they're exchanging information because they're in an office. It's a job. Yep. And I just want to call out one scene when they finally identify the victim. Oh, you, you, you're still you keep stealing the things that I want to bring up. Scott. I, know exact, <laughs> I know exactly what scene you're going to say. And I totally agree with you on this. Go for okay. it. Uh, detective inspector fellows goes to you know inform the parents, and the father the father oh. uh, is played by um, what's his name uh, jo- John Lemessurier, and, and I and I he was one of he was one of the few that I recognized immediately. Yeah, I don't and, know why yeah. I knew him, but I recognized him immediately. Yeah, you mm-hmm. see, you've seen him in, in a thousand things, and he's only briefly on on screen, but he makes such an impact because he he manages to be heartbreaking. With an amazing, even ruthless efficiency, um, you know, mm-hmm. Fellows is interviewing the parents. Her dad is being a dick about how she's kind of slutty. For and this goes on for about forty-five seconds. Then he finds out she's dead, has a disturbingly realistic breakdown, and uh, just leaves the room. And leaves the and room. Just leaves the room. And 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 makes me feel bad for a guy that two seconds earlier I was quietly loathing. And then he comes back, and the way he grabs his wife. Yeah, he holds it together until Fellows leaves the room. And then, yeah, he just sort of collapses and grabs his wife. And the wife goes, well, he, he really did love her. And you, you can see that. There's like a whole history of this family. That's, In two minutes. Yeah. But mm-hmm. it's so effective, he was, that always, was he, I always found him to be so genuine. He's such a good uh, actor, usually very understated. You, you feel bad for him. You know exact. You can see exactly what he's going through. The the what like you said. The amount of information that is given in this movie minimally is amazing. Mm-hmm. If you guys can't find this, especially hey Brit listeners, if you if you haven't seen this film, fucking fine. You guys can get it. Watch this damn movie. Fucking love it, Larry. Thank you so much for suggesting this. Well, I never would have found I'm this. Really, I'm really pleased that you guys uh, liked it. Now, of course. This discussion makes me want to see it again because it has been a couple of years. I'm, I'm really glad you dug it. It's, yeah. Oh, my God. So uh, this brings us to the part of the show where we wrap up our musings, draw our conclusions and utter our final tombstone worthy words of wisdom. And it's called Fascinating Irritating. <laughs> so let's start with Jeff. I have two fascinating things, honestly, and, they've, and I've already mentioned them. I'm going to re-mention them again. One, the lack of a musical score I thought was just brilliant. It, there was something about the lack of music that I think added to the palpable tension that this film has. 
And that I just thought uh, more. I, I'd like to. Say, I wish more movies would do that because it works. I mean, while I, uh, while musical scores are phenomenal for conveying mood and giving you the right mood, sometimes a lack of music can do the exact same thing. Yep. And the other fascinating thing for me was, and you named the actor, I forgot, I don't know his name, but um, the victim's dad's performance. That performance for the two minutes that he was on screen was just mind-numbingly brilliant. John LeMessure. John LeMessure, thank you, yes, yes. That performance as the dad was just, Mm -hmm. the fact that he was only on screen for like that long and he had such a lasting effect just the actor and me going, okay, that's, yes, 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 that is so freaking on. The acting in this film is so understated and, and so natural. It's just, it, it's a beautiful thing to watch. It really is. Mm-hmm. Irritating for me was, unfortunately, the three moments where I felt the acting wasn't natural. These three particular moments did take me out of the movie, but thankfully, within 30 seconds, I pulled back into it by everything else. What were these moments? Well, there was the, 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 that, that opening, the opening monologue up until the aspirin throw bottle. That didn't work for me. There was, um, honestly, I hate saying this, but it was his, um, his wife's breakdown. You know the scene I'm talking about. Her first breakdown at the end of her scene. Okay. No, no, it's not true. That's not true when right. she kind of gets hysterical. The, the, uh, you're talking about the, the girl who they originally thought was the victim. And turned out to yes, be alive. yes, oh. yes. Yeah, her 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 little mental breakdown just did not work for me at all. And um, there there were there was one scene in particular with our killer. I absolutely love the killer's performance, except for one scene towards the end where, I, where when he's explaining things, and I just thought he just went a little overboard. And that that's just me. Uh, but again. That was the only part where I thought he went over. I loved everybody's performances. It's just for those little individual moments, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like I said, I am not ragging on the actors at all in their performances, just in those particular moments. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I know it's been two years for you, Larry, but if you have... Yes, I have nothing. I was not irritated by anything that I recall at all. Um, I understand. I I liked it from stem to stern. Loved it, in fact, and um, wondered why I hadn't heard of it. And the thing that I am... Uh, most, if I have to pick a single impression, it is Val Guest's supreme confidence. Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. This, he wrote the script. He directed it, and he produced them. And then he tells this story, and he lets it unfold with such confidence. He doesn't, he doesn't you know, without standing on a soapbox, without, without yep. screaming, without throwing anything in your face, he just tells this story in pure brilliant simple storytelling that keeps you absolutely enthralled val guest rocks agreed i agree absolutely agreed sir what i found fascinating was when i looked at the movie and i was just as you say it's got that sort of bleak black and white look made all the more so because it's set in an off-season resort community which having grown up in one of those those are always a little bleak it feels like it should be dull it's, it's very detail fixated. There's a lot of cop legwork and routine, but it moves with amazing speed and, and determination. I also like the film's lack of cynicism. The cops aren't neurotics uh, yep. on a crusade mm-hmm. for vengeance, or, uh, and they're not bored time servers who plot along, you know, uncaring because they're burnt out or the victim was a whore or whatever. Um, they're just guys. There's they're no guys. guys. There's, well, yeah, th- there's no speeches about motivation or 
you know, metaphysical musings on the necessity of speaking for the dead. The cops are focused mm-hmm. on catching the killer because that's their job and they're good yeah. at their job. Yes. Uh, I, I really liked how much I cared about the, seeing these guys win, despite how little I knew about them personally. And, and it, it's such a relief not to have to worry about somebody completing their arc because that's really distracting in a mystery. I just want to see them solve the mystery. If someone's yeah. got to work out their emotional arc at the same time, it's just like, I don't want to juggle both these. Just, <laughs> just, just show me who the killer is. Mm-hmm. Work that out on your own time. Don't Eggs. take up my time working out your, your art, okay? <laughs> work it out your own time, pal. No art working. Punch out for that. <laughs> um, oh, irritating man. Irritating is, is, is nitpicky. Uh, the, the ending seemed rushed. Uh, and the reveal of who the killer was wasn't, you know, wasn't exactly a shocker. But really, that's like having a delicious five-course meal and then thinking that the dessert was kind of bland. Um, see, I'm not, yeah, not going to lie, because when it got to the ending, since we never saw the guy's face at the beginning, I'm sitting there going, okay, obviously this is a character that we're going to be seeing later in the film. Okay, let's party here. But you know what? So, I, yeah. I, I, wasn't, I was so gripped by the story and, and the speed at which it was moving and... and the characters that I wasn't, I usually was like, a, oh, could this be the killer? Could this be the killer? I was just watching the movie. I really wasn't trying to outguess yeah. it, which is Actually, unusual in for this me. Case, at, when, when the, in, the, in that first scene, when we didn't see his face, that's when I, when I thought I was going to try and outthink the movie. But like you said, once that first scene ended and the movie proper started, I was just so engrossed. I, like you, I didn't care. I didn't try to outguess. I just wanted to watch it unfold in front of me, which, again, is so effing rare. Thank you so much for bringing this film to our attention, Larry. You're uh, you're welcome. And, and again, I'm I'm just really uh, pleased that you guys liked it. Hey, by the way, you mentioned off season, Brighton, you know, uh, resort town off season. I, I suddenly remember the Entertainer with Laurence Olivier. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, bleak black and white early '60s. That's a whole genre into uh, of English film unto itself, isn't it? Just yeah, that- y- yes, it is. But that ha- that that is in a you know he's. Uh, um, in the music hall entertainment business, and it's on a it's a bleak seashore setting, and uh, um, it has that that wonderful ambiance. And probably was filmed in the same place. Oh yeah, very likely. One, one last fact: uh, I learned so, I learned something new. I learned that in Britain in 1962, when you called 911, you actually called 999. 999. Yes. Yes. Hey Scott, is this the first film since Turbo Kid on the show that we've actually loved? Like, actually loved this much for the Unknown Movie Challenge, not movie, not not the movie crew. Okay. For the UMC, is this is, is this the first film since Turbo Kid that we've actually loved? This might be. By this golly. Might and that's going back to that's going back to one of the first couple of episodes. So it's been a long time since we have watched a movie that we have both absolutely loved. So again, Larry, thank you for right. bringing this to our attention. You bet, guys. Larry, please tell people where they can find you on social media because they really should. Well, if you're uh, looking for me on social media, uh, look for the name Larry Blamire, and you'll find me. I have a public page and also a uh, personal page on Facebook, and I'm on Twitter under the same name. Just so it's not confusing. And um, and there you go. And more Tales of the Calamo Mountains and uh, Tales of the Calamo Mountains are uh, available uh, from Lulu.com. Is that where the... Yes. And uh, the first book is on Amazon also. And, and uh, Doc Armstrong's Suburb uh, at the Edge of Never is, is on uh, Amazon and Lulu. Get them both. You will not be disappointed. 
You've been hearing me blow smoke up this man's ass for years. <laughs> Finally, go out and find out why. You will be glad you did. You'll say, you'll say ah, now I can finally get my own ass fumigated. <laughs> <laughs> and watch for uh, uh, Great Scott Rare Imaginary comic book covers. Yes, and and yes. really sub- subscribe to subscribe to uh, Larry's Twitter feed because he does he does show bits and pieces of things in progress sometimes. And they're always a, a uh, they're always a revelation in a hoot. And when, when the, when the book uh, is available, we will certainly let everyone here know. Ha- hashtag rare imaginary covers. will show you the ones that I've done now. Oh, to- cool. There you go, folks. Check these suckers out. They are, they're, they're fun. They're oh, fun. Yes. Thank you. And uh, all right, that's it. Thank you for joining us for the 50th, Larry. Once hey, again, it was an honor and a joy to have you. Honored to be on the 50th, guys, and may you have 50 more and then 50 more. Great. Well, we'll I hope you'll come back for the 100th, then. <laughs> I'll be there. And, and, and the subsequent sesquicentennial. <laughs> God. I'll be there when I find out what it means. Okay. <laughs> Many thanks again to our special guest, Larry Blamire, and thanks to you for listening. If you missed our first interview with Larry, you can still check it out. It's episode number 40. Larry Blamire versus Thor. You can find that in the archives. You can also find links to Larry's works on our website, theslumgullion.com. Jeff and I will be back in two weeks or less, or your money back. And until then, don't be a stranger, just be strange.